Welcome to the Faith FX Podcast. I'm Bernie Vandewall. I'm Mark Buchanan. And this is where faith and life meet. Welcome to Faith Effects. I'm Mark Buchanan. And I'm Bernie Vandewall. Still. Still. Yeah. Yeah. Bernie, we have a really interesting guest on our program today. And we do the interview while he he's in Wales. He's sitting in Wales. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've not been to Wales. I've not been to Wales. I've been to, you've I've been been to England. You've been a lot of countries. But you've um, not been to but Wales. Not been to Wales, no. But you love visiting graves every, anywhere you go, everywhere you go. Oh, yeah. England was great. I mean. Okay. Don't, this, 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 this. If you went to Wales. Wales. Okay. If I went to grave, Wales. grave sites would you visit? Uh, well, because I'm a Theo nerd, I would probably go to, I, I believe John Stott is uh, buried there. And the uh, great Welsh revivalist, Evan Roberts. That's where I'd go. Those two. Those would be in the top. Top of my list, as far as I know, if I if I when for when you take me to Wales, I would love to take you to Wales. I, I love Wales very much, and I have to confess, I lived there for uh, the better part of a year. Wow! And, I, and I'm not into going visiting gravesites, so I oh. went to some of the churches Evan Roberts preached in. Okay. But I did not visit his gravesite, so we'll have to do that together. We will on our I, next mandate. Well, both start. And Evan Roberts were were not only deeply impactful; they were they're wildly productive. What they got done in their time and in their life is truly remarkable. Truly, so uh, th- with our guest today, some of the stuff that comes out is is very interesting. He's uh, Jared Brock, Jay Brock, documentary filmmaker and author. And we really catch a passion because he's living out of some profound convictions about some of the things that he sees, especially in the Western world, and that his work he sees is addressing. Uh, Any real aha moments in this interview for you? Well, you know, we just talked about John Stott. We just talked about Evan Roberts. uh, And and, I mean, he's in, uh, Jay is interested in and has done, you know, a real variance of things with, with, Certainly a lot of commonalities, but what really struck me is that he has a resume that uh, a ladder climber would want, and he's not. Indeed. He He has no interest in ladder climbing, and yet he has the CV people would die for. Utterly. I mean, that was the, one of the, the phrases he uses in this interview, that he's really tried to die to personal ambition. Right, yeah. And I think our listeners are going to want to hear about what's underneath that, what it looks like, what, what motivates him toward this. This is hardly a person, when we, we were about to meet him, that you think there's a sleepy character. There's no, a guy exactly. who's got you know, no, nothing to contribute to the work. He, he's full of energy. He's full of vision yeah. and passion. But he really sees that some of the ways that uh, we've got caught up in chasing after things has mm-hmm. actually done damage to the gospel. Yeah, and it, he really does live out the principle of of the dialectic of the of the upside down kingdom, yeah. right? The the very thing that he doesn't strive for, he he seems to get right. So you know, the greatest must become least, and the least become greatest. Uh, this guy seems to Gets personify yeah, that for me. Yeah. So let's get in with our guest, Jay Brock. We have in our show today, Faith Effects, Jay or Jared Brock, living in Wales as we're talking to him. 
And Jay, I think it's an interesting story how, how we met. Maybe you could tell our listeners a bit about um, how you and I first came to get to know one another. I guess that story starts with me reading most of Mark's books and just being blown away by all of them and saying, well, I want to be an author when I grow up, so I should apprentice to a master. So, yeah, obviously I was in Costa Rica in a rainforest and I Skyped you. Obviously you were there, yeah. Number. Yeah, and uh, Skyped you and basically said, hey, I'll come volunteer 20 hours a week at your church if you meet one hour a week to talk about writing and leadership and life. And you ran it by the elders of the church. And next thing you know, I spent half on Vancouver Island and I gained more than just a mentor. I think we both gained a friend and uh, it's been almost 10 years now. Can you believe it? I can't. It's been a great friendship, though. I, I've really enjoyed it. And and so out of that came, and I, I would not take very much credit for, for any of this, but you really buckled down and started to write. Uh, you'd already done some documentary film stuff, and we'll come and talk about that um, a bit later, but you, th- that really took off. And so that, that became some, this last 10 years have been very, very highly productive for you. Um, t- t- maybe just give a bit of a background how you got interested in general in this creative life in writing, in filmmaking, et cetera. Um, well, I, the writing thing started early. Um, I'm left-handed, and uh, my mother tells me that I started carrying two pens and scraps of paper in my left pocket from the age of two. Um, I've now upgraded to two pens and a notebook um, because my wife hates um, hundreds of scraps of papers all over the house. <laughs> so, um, I yeah, so basically that's how my writing habit started. Um, in the fourth grade, I wrote my first novella, and then... Um, wrote my first screenplay when I was, I think, 18 and wow. started writing books. And eventually I've had the honor of having three of them published so far and hopefully some more in my life, but three so far. Cool. Uh, so, Jay, we, I know you have a wife, Michelle. Any any other family? Yep. Um, so, like, I mean, the big two relationships in, in my life are definitely my wife and my God. So I came to faith at 17, despite having grown up in a religious home with a uh, pastor for a dad. I didn't okay. come to faith until I was 17. And then um, I kissed my future wife uh, in the summer of the seventh grade when we were 13 years old at a wow. Newsboys concert. So um, <laughs> that that seals the deal pretty well. And then, yeah, mom and dad and uh, got a younger sister who is a teacher um, uh, with, she's just amazing uh, with On the Margin Kids. And then I have a brother. Uh, who is a uh, fitness trainer, uh, really loves um, getting people in peak condition. So that's my family. Okay, great. Uh, now, I understand you've written a book called A Year of Living Prayerfully, and recently you did the very strange-ish thing of buying the copyright right back from the publisher and that you're going to re-release the book this spring. So tell me about this book, this book that you would basically uh, ransom out of captivity. Uh, and how did you come to write it and, and why the re-release? Yeah, so A Year of Living Prayerfully is my first published book. Um, it started 
in the red light districts of Amsterdam. Um, we were going to shoot a documentary on human trafficking called Red Light, Green Light, and we decided to go scout out the red light district before we went undercover and, and filmed. So we, we walked down, my wife and I, and there was just this massive party going on. There was a soccer game on, and there's about 300 drunk guys outside of this one bar. And, you know, they're puking in the streets and peeing in the alleyways, and there's police on horseback, and the din was just really, really loud. And um, it was very overwhelming. And if their team wins, these men, they go and they celebrate with the women in the windows. And if their team loses, they go and they take out their aggression on the women. And so either way, these girls are losing. And in the middle of the red light district is an 800-year-old church, oldest building in Amsterdam, and it's still active. And every hour the church bells ring, and men are abusing women to the soundtrack of church bells. And I just stood in the middle of that, and I was just completely overwhelmed. And I said, God, I need your power and prayer to end this. And so that started a 59,000-kilometer pilgrimage around the world, um, looking at our Judeo-Christian um, faith family and all its prayer traditions. So mm. I did a Catholic chapter where we got to meet Pope Francis and have lunch at the Vatican. Uh, I did a weird chapter where I went to North Korea, um, and I went to about 10 countries to look at different faith and prayer traditions. And and uh, so that was a year of living prayerfully, and I really felt... Um, I really felt called to write it, and I really felt called to spread the message. And all these years later, that passion hasn't died, but the book sales did. So, okay. Um, yeah, uh, you know, the book came out. I didn't have any sort of platform. I'm not insta-famous. I don't own a cell phone. And uh, it did pretty well for a first-time author with no platform. It sold around 13,000 copies. But then the publisher moved on. They have to. They've got lots of books. It's a business. And... So the book was just kind of sitting there dead in the water. So my wife and I both independently felt very much like, you know, all the feedback we've had on this book is that it's just, it's been so powerful in people's lives. And so we actually don't own the book. Um, from day one, I put it in not-for-profit. All the profits from it go to charity. And so we just decided let's buy it back and re-release it. So I took a publishing course at Oxford University, and now we are re-releasing A Year of Living Perfectly because we don't feel like God's done with it yet. And maybe that's insane. I don't know yet. Can I, let me let me jump in because I have a question. Uh, and uh, so, so Jay, do you know who bought the book? Right? Who who was your demographic? I, I you had one probably going in. You probably had one in mind. Do you know who bought the book? Like who was your who was your actual audience? Any idea? Like I mean, that might be part of the problem. Is I have no idea. I, I didn't have access to that data. So we're kind of flying blind on this, but um, from what I can tell on the reviews, it's people between the ages of like 30 and 60. Who oh, really? Come okay. From a Christian background. Yeah. Come from a Christian background like me, but their prayer life was dead, just like sunk in the water like mine was. And so it's really been a book that's kind of helped Christians elevate their prayer life. And, and um, you know, it's stuck for me. You know, the book came out. I think four or five years ago, and I'm still practicing some of those practices to this very day. And, and I hope that it does that for the thousands of readers who've read it as well. Jay, I, I know your book. I think it's brilliant and it helped me and continues to help me. I actually go back to many of the practices. It's also um, one of those rare books that is just a great read. It's fun, it's funny, it's moving, it's a great rip-roaring, rollicking story of you going, you know, putting on these many, many thousands of kilometers as you visit 
uh, communities that both inspire and some that are just plain odd. Uh, for instance, you go to Gainsborough uh, Baptist Church and uh, have an interview with some of the folks there. So uh, anyhow, I, I highly, highly commend this book, and I'm really, really glad it's it's coming back out. Is it going to be under the same title, A Year of Living Prayerfully? Yep. Yeah, it's a, yeah, just a re-release. We're going to drop the price to make it a lot more affordable for people, and um, we're going to do some creative marketing um, ideas with it. Um, basically, just publishing the structure as it is, uh, there was no way to do it financially sustainably um, when the lion's share was going to be going to a publisher. And we obviously want to be good stewards with the limited resources that we have. So that's why we decided to buy it back and do it that way. Very good. Uh, one one shout out for the book, the, the uh, laugh out loud scene is where you have your wife, Michelle, do a mikvah bath in uh, Frigid Lake, Ontario, in the middle of winter while you sit in the warm car watching. Um, that, that, <laughs> that, that's worth the price of the entire book, just saying. And there's many, many other great places. Um, to talk about uh, uh, the second book that came out after that, which is fun and insightful, and it's called Bearded Gospel Men. I'm looking at the world after making Red Light, Green Light, which is this you know, documentary on human trafficking. Then we make a, another documentary called Over 18 on pornography. And I'm looking at the world and I'm saying, where are all the godly men? Um, godliness in men is in decline. Um, you know, guys my age and certainly younger are addicted to porn. They're playing games in their parents' basement. And they, they have a huge love of money. I think those are the big things is just power, sex, and money. And... Uh, He'd given up an internship to be a stand-up comedian at Second City um, to work with homeless and prostituted women in California. And he then decided to break up with his girlfriend and become celibate and become a priest in the poorest uh, Catholic diocese in America. He's one of the most godly, legit men I've ever met. And um, we decided to write a book together called Bearded Gospel Men. He has a 13-inch beard. And... Um, it's a 40-day devotional for dudes, um, where each day we profile some epic guy in Christian history who also happened to have a beard. And so it's just a, it's a, it uses beards as humor, but the key word obviously is gospel. Now, you're not just a writer. You're also a filmmaker, you and uh, your wife, Michelle. Uh, tell us about uh, not only your book, The Road to Dawn, but the film based on it, uh, Redeeming Uncle Tom. This project started um, in 2014. We were in a bookstore in Florida, and um, Michelle had been wanting to read Uncle Tom's Cabin for a long time. It's the book that Abraham Lincoln supposedly said started the Civil War. So I bought it, and I put it in her stocking for Christmas. And she was really moved by it, and I'm a naturally curious guy, and so I did a little bit more research. And I discovered that it was based on this real man named Josiah Henson. And um, then I learned that his cabin was less than two hours from my own house in Ontario, wow. in a little town called Dresden, but an hour from Detroit. And so we drove, checked out this man's cabin, and I read his little tiny memoir, and I was just blown away. Um, the man won a medal at the first World's Fair in London. He went back to America and rescued 118 slaves. He was a minister with a 300-mile territory. 
he um, preached at Spurgeon's Tabernacle and Wesley's Chapel, and he was the inspiration for Uncle Tom's Cabin. So he's affected all of our lives, and yet no one had heard of him. So I ended up retracing his journey over 5,000 kilometers from slavery to freedom, and I got to visit plantations, um, one of which is still owned by his slave owner's descendants to this very day. And um, I wrote a biography called The Road to Dawn, as well as I made a documentary called Redeeming Uncle Tom. And that film uh, was narrated by a Hollywood actor named Danny Glover. And it's currently being shown 1,100 times over 300 PBS channels. So finally, the nation is hopefully going to hear Josiah Henson's story. Wow. So... what what would be one thing you would you would hope your viewer of that movie would 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 take away? For me, it's a scene in Josiah's story where his family he has escaped with his wife and four children, uh, the two youngest tied on his broken shoulders, and they walk six hundred miles, almost a thousand kilometers, to Detroit, and they're about to cross the Niagara River, and there's this kind Scottish man who's paid to send them across on the ferry. And the Scottish man asks Josiah a question first. He says, are you going to be a good man? And Josiah replies, I will use my freedom well. And I think Josiah understood the Bible first that said it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Mm. Like he understood yeah. that like he could settle into this comfortable, you know, white picket fence Canadian lifestyle. But instead he like keeps risking his life to rescue others. And he, you know, fundraises the equivalent of millions for the abolitionist cause, and he agitates for change, and he supports husbands and brothers, um, the families of people who go off and fight in the Civil War. He, he just, he understands stewardship. And for me, the big, the big takeaway for all audiences, I want it to be, am I using my freedom well? Am I stewarding my time, talent, and, and treasure on behalf of those with less than me? So that, for me, that's the big lesson of Josiah Henson's life. Okay, that's so good. That actually is a great place to talk about some of your other documentary films that you and your wife, Michelle, have made, because it really is about advocating for change. It's about using your freedom well. It's about agitating to see a better future. Talk about the first big, you've done some uh, prior documentary filmmaking, but but the first big one was Red Light, Green Light. You've already mentioned that, but say a bit more about what that movie is about and what you're trying to do through it. So several years ago, um, the laws in Canada regarding prostitution were struck down at the Supreme Court, and they gave the House of Commons one year to rewrite the laws on prostitution. Otherwise, it would become fully decriminalized. And um, we'd already done a little bit of work that suggested that when you make it legal for men to pay for sex, there will be more demand than there is willing supply. And so people will be trafficked and exploited. So we decided to make Red Light, Green Light, and we traveled to 10 countries to look at different prostitution models. And it became overwhelmingly clear that this is a supply-demand economic market. And we don't think it's a good idea for Canada or any nation to increase its demand for paid sex because people will just be exploited. Even in legal prostitution contexts, uh, it's not a job like any other job. Far higher uh, homicide rates, far, far higher suicide rates, far higher STD rates, unwanted pregnancy rates. It's an awful, awful quote-unquote profession, and it's one that we don't want to see any woman be stuck in because of poverty or desperation or, or whatever pushed or pulled her into it. So 
basically we advocated for a demand reduction model in Canada, which basically means criminalizing purchasing of sex and decriminalizing selling of sex. So uh, it's kind of like, you know, you'd never arrest a woman if her husband's beating her. Why would you arrest a prostituted woman because she is being trafficked or, or sexually exploited when you can offer her the ability to get out? So it's an asymmetrical approach. And I think nations around the world should adopt it. It's called the Nordic model. It's working very well in Sweden, where basically you make it illegal to pay for sex and then you help people who are in it get out. So that's what we did. And we helped get a law changed in Canada. Um, it's actually on the agenda with the current reigning party. Um, they have a, a young caucus who is actually pushing to put it on a national agenda. So I, I would think if they get reelected, we're going to be hearing a lot more about this in the in the next couple of years. So I don't think red light, green light is done. We actually still get requests for it on a pretty, pretty regular basis because um, it's a very important topic. I don't, I don't want to live in a country where my, da- my daughter is a rentable commodity. Yeah, and it's, it's superb. Uh, so you follow that up with over 18. And similarly, you were trying to change some laws with this. Tell us about the movie and what changes you're, you're going after with this one. So for over 18... We decided, okay, let's go upstream of human trafficking and prostitution and say, you know, what are some of the factors on the demand side? Like, what is, what is, what is causing men to demand paid sex, right? And one of those factors is unquestionably pornography. There's a lot of links between trafficking and pornography, uh, especially on the demand side. Um, you know, young men today, unlike my generation and certainly unlike yours, um, there's never been a time in history where we have access 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year to unlimited, free, hardcore HD pornography at the click of a button in our pocket on our cell phones. And it's completely hooked to generation. Um, the statistics are astounding. And so Over 18 is a documentary on pornography, specifically looking at youth ad- uh, addiction. And so the story kind of focuses around a young real-life boy named Joseph who uh, at age 13 was in recovery for a porn addiction. Wow. And um, we would love to see Canada and other nations um, have meaningful age verification. So rather than this whole nonsense of, are you over 18, click yes or no, we would love to see countries have meaningful age verification like they do already for, let's say, um, gambling websites. You can't put a penny on online gambling without putting in a credit card or proving that you're over 18. It's a really simple thing. The porn company... Um, MindGeek has already created um, a system to do it, um, like an ID system to do it, and they already sell it in countries where they are mandated to do it. But there's simply no political will in Canada right now. So we would love to see North America adopt meaningful age verification in order to protect kids from hardcore porn. Awesome. Um, you recently, because you didn't have enough going already, you recently uh, launched a, a new charity called Stewardship International. Uh, what is it and why are you doing it? Shall I believe that we have three major stewardships in our life, uh, relational, financial, and environmental. Um, and we would love to, um, we would love our charity to grow into these three things. Um, loving people, stewarding our time, talent, and treasure, and caring for God's creation. So to start, obviously, we're already working on the relational piece. Um, you know, pornography it kills love. Uh, human trafficking is a saccharine form of intimacy. And we really see 
a, a world that is just so broken sexually and relationally. And we'd love to create beautiful projects and put words in the world that can heal some of that and draw people closer together in, in righteous ways, so to speak. And then the second one, financial stewardship. Um, the more we look at these things, we realize that they're motivated by money. So human trafficking, it's not about sex. It's about money. Pornography, it's not about sex. It's about money. So we'd love to um, start talking about stewardship, about how we use our money in order to love others. And then the third thing is creation care. Um, we see a planet that is just being degraded on a mass scale. We've traveled to over 40 countries and we just see environmental destruction everywhere. And yet we have a God who's asked us to steward the earth, to, to lead it well, to serve it well, um, because um, he loves all of his creation. And I think the church has sadly not led on creation care, and we'd love to help plant some seeds that could change that. I think it would be amazing if the church led on issues of sexuality, finances, and creation care. Dude, that's so good. You're currently in Wales, and what are you working on? Well, aside from um, the book relaunch, I've got a couple of book proposals I'm working on. Um, the first one is a novel on tax havens. Um, I've never written a novel before, and it is proving to be so hard, as Mark, I know you know. Um, um, tax havens are the number one thing that are uh, wrecking havoc on the poor and the planet that no one is talking about. Um, I'm a lot closer to it here in the UK. Um, the city of London uh, is one of the biggest tax havens uh, in history, and uh, it is just, it is robbing the poor and middle class on a scale that is just it's unimaginable. And I'm, and I'm almost at the point of, because of the research I've been doing where I just feel like our world needs a global repentance in the area of finances. Um, it is, it is absolutely heartbreaking, but I would love to shine a light on that, uh, in story form. So yeah, working on my first novel and then there's a couple of stories I really want to tell. Uh, there's a human trafficking story, um, that I'd love to tell. Um, I got a lot of irons in the fire, um, but prayers for open doors are certainly appreciated. <laughs> okay, Jay, this question is sort of normally the one that I ask. Uh, so you are special, but you're pretty normal because I'm coming after you on this. What grounds, you know, any or all of these projects theologically, biblically, uh, what motivates, what sustains you? Um, for me, I, there's two big key verses for me that have informed uh, my work and Michelle's work. Um, the first one's Luke twelve forty eight. It says, it's definitely the most haunting verse in scripture for me. It says, to whom much has been given, much more will be required. Um, for me, I've always got the sense with that, that it isn't a one-to-one, -one, it's a multiple. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you've been given one gift, uh, one is required. But if you've been given uh, three gifts, it's it's kind of like you... Like it's a multiplication effect of like your talent, your treasure, your relationships, your connections, your creativity. I, for some reason, I've always been able to really see how wealthy we are in the West and how selfish we are as a church. And so I've just been trying to reject personal ambition and pick up kingdom ambition in a big way. Um, you know, the Bible says do nothing out of selfish ambition. Like I can barely brush my teeth without having selfish ambition. Hmm. And I just, I know that so much is required of me. And so that I think is, 
is kind of a big driver for me. And then the other one is my favorite verse in the Bible is Psalm 90 verse 12. It says, teach us the number of days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Literally life is short. So learn to live right. And, um, I, maybe I'm destined to die young. I don't know, but I really identify, um, with a bearded gospel man named CT stud who said, he had this poem where he said, only one life it soon will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. And, I just kind of pair those two things. I say, man, life is short. I don't want to waste it. So those are the two things that I think really drive our work. There's, I hope everyone who ever reads one of my books or sees one of my films, that they just feel this like great sense of urgency that like, we have one shot. The church is the hope of the world. Let's do something now. So if, if, one of our listeners is is intrigued by all or any one of your stories. Uh, Jay, how can they find out more? Um, they could go to uh, the charity's website is stewardshipinternational.com. And then my website is jaredbrock.com. Those are probably the best two spots to start. Okay, great. Thank you. Jay, it's been such a pleasure having this opportunity to talk with you and uh, catch a bit of your vision and your passion and the work that you're, the good work that you're doing in the world. Uh, so thankful for you and for that work and for Michelle and uh, the work that she does. So thanks for being today with Bernie Vandewell and myself, Mark Buchanan on Faith Effects. Looking for a collection of resources to help your church or ministry succeed? Ambrose at Large is an initiative of Ambrose Seminary, committed to sharing resources and learning opportunities. Visit at large.ambrose.edu for more information.